If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you do not, we'll be intentional about having these verses on the screen so that you can know what I am saying to you is from God's Word, and maybe today more than other Sundays. You say you're making a big deal out of this. I don't care. I'm ready for submission. It's the whole reason I'm here. I see you're already in a fighting mode. I'm not. I'm just a man of peace. Just a man of peace. I do want to share with you from Scripture what is unavoidable, inescapable, in order for us to have a healthy, successful, biblically speaking, scriptural marriage. Ultimately, for the believer, that is the way to genuine fulfillment and validation and worth. And without equivocation within Scripture, the Apostle Paul writes to wives in his letters to the believers at Ephesus and Colossae, and listen in what he says, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, no mistaking who he's talking to, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. He'll write to the believers in Colossae, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. In fact, his classic passage on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, he summarizes that discourse by speaking to the husband and the wife. He states this in Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. When the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to Titus, who was ministering on the Isle of Crete, he exhorted him to teach his church this way, particularly teach the older women to teach the younger women this, in verse 5 of chapter 2, how to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. That's somewhat incendiary. To the modern mind, it is seemingly antiquated. In fact, Peter will back that momentarily. But as Peter begins chapter 3 of his letter, he writes this in verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. That word strikes in subjection, reverence, obedience. The word that Peter uses here, subjection, is the same Greek word that is used throughout the New Testament to convey submission. It doesn't have a harder edge on it than it does in other places. In fact, the specific use of this word is in correlation with the tone, the recipients of Peter's letter. It is the idea of emptying ourselves. Navigating our way through adverse conditions. He'll actually come back in chapter 5. He'll echo what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.21 where he tells us to submit one to another. Peter will come back. He'll use that same word. He'll echo that. He'll say we're to be subject one to another. And in order to carry that out, we must clothe ourselves with humility. It is without any capacity to escape, that submission is vital. In order for us 
to have a healthy marriage. We've got to understand what it is that the Scripture is teaching. And from the onset, there are six verses here in Peter's letter to wives and one to husbands. Seemingly an unfair thing, one New Testament scholar suggested more space is devoted to Christian wives here simply because... Many of them in this church environment and culture were married to husbands who were either indifferent to the gospel or literally opposed to Christianity. Another said this, no specific group of members in the church was more in need of warm encouragement, wise spiritual counsel, and understanding than these wives. He again heralds the message, many of whom were now married to unbelievers. And for a Christian wife in first century Rome to abandon the pagan religion and lifestyle of her husband would be to invite acute problems. And so we began last week establishing in our study forever foundations that submission is vital to a healthy marriage. And what once came natural in the garden at creation, when the world was ordered and ran as God intended it to run, now I can say to you, should be carried out in a supernatural way, indicating that for this spirit to be exhibited, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Because what once was natural has been contorted, perverted, twisted by sin. Yet again, one said, when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage. Not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted them. It twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination or lazy indifference. It twisted woman's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative deference or brazen insubordination. Sin did not create the need for headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive, like sin always does. We must grasp what the Scripture has for us, and it is that we must understand it rightly. We must grasp that submission, according to Scripture, is unavoidably necessary within our homes. And in order for me to teach it, let me first tell you what submission is not As I was studying, I came across and read this. Submission does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should do so. It does not mean that if your husband asks you to sin, you should do so. It does not mean that you must always agree with him and never present a differing view. It does not mean that if he's unfaithful to you, you're left without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if he abuses you physically or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quietly in the home and accept the daily cruelty of that relationship at all costs. That's not what submission communicates. I can say unequivocally, submission is not having to agree on every single thing. I've been married for 25 years. We have not agreed on everything for 25 years. I have been wrong numerous times. Agreement 
is not necessary on all things. And that is not what submission requires or mandates. The fact is there is independence of thought. Marriage is the union of two distinctly unique individuals that in God's eyes become one flesh. Inevitably, we have a different set of experiences and a different view on life and differences in personality. And God designs it so that those meld into a beautiful relationship. But that does not require that agreement exists on every single thing. Submission does not mean leaving your brain at the altar. Submission does not mean that you don't have thoughts that are worth listening to. Leadership, in fact, in a loving way, often means that you listen to counsel that you receive. It does not mandate that as a man you always get the last word. Sometimes it means saying, you were right and I was wrong. And a lot of marriages could be helped if those words were spoken. Submission does not mean living or acting in fear. The scripture teaches us that perfect love casteth out fear. That we have not been given a mind that is coerced by fear. Rather, we've been given a sound mind. We're not manipulated by fear. In fact, the God-fearing wife is fearless, finding her identity in Christ. I reiterate, biblical submission is not the basis for verbal or physical abuse. It's not a free pass for violence. It's not a free pass for bad behavior. It's not something that is coerced. It is something that is given. In fact, as I was studying, I came across this yet again. Submission. The difference between being subjugated or submitting. Subjugation is the act of a ruler to force obedience. One who uses fear or force or intimidation to break the will of someone. So that eventually they capitulate and surrender. They have been conquered. They have been subjugated. Submission rather is the act of someone who acknowledges legitimate authority. Willingly arranges himself or herself accordingly. Submission is voluntary, never forced, responding to the divine order of things, first in heart, then in the life. To see the biblical example, we look at the church. The church has not been ruthlessly conquered by Jesus Christ. The church was won by Christ. And so willingly we submit to His rule and guidance and instruction. We acknowledge His right to govern and acknowledge His overwhelming love. And we respond to His Spirit. We arrange our lives according to that. Thereby a wife has not been conquered by her husband. She's not been sovereignly claimed by him. Rather, she has been pursued and wooed and loved and won. And now, God calls on her to submit to her husband's leadership. To acknowledge that in the ordering of the family, God has ordained that role of leadership and the expectation of submission. The consistent instruction of the Bible is that the one under authority offers submission. Foreign to the Bible is that the one with authority must force the subjection of those underneath of them. That is not what submission is. The second that you use that word, it is incendiary. 
It feels like our flesh prickles up against it. But I must be clear that leadership is not dictatorship, but it is the loving exercise of divine authority underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submission. That's what submission is not. But we have to understand, if we're ever going to live this out, what is submission. And for us to grasp that, we have to know what the word means. It means to willingly rank under, to voluntarily assist in order to complete. One Greek scholar said the word carries with it the idea of providing a foundation. A woman with this God-glorifying perspective can say, as I voluntarily submit to my husband, I am completing him. I am helping him fulfill his responsibilities, helping him to become the man, the husband, the leader that God intended him to be. This stands up to our eternal principles, our forever foundations, which we unearthed all the way back in Genesis where God ordained the marriage. God looked at creation and he said, everything is good. Then he saw man in his alone state and said, that is not good. And in order for God to solve the not good aspect of man's alone state, he created woman. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him unhelp meet for him. A helper suitable, a completing part. Submission allows the complement to fit in. It is literally the filling of the void that once existed according to God's design. It is a forever principle. So the concept of submission and assistance existed in the Garden of Eden before sin arrived on the scene. The beauty of headship and submission prior to sin was it was the natural order of things. And then sin. And under the curse of sin, man who once lovingly led by nature now seeks to have dominion because of the perversion of sin. And woman, Eve, who submitted, now has within her, due to the twisting of sin, a desire to take back authority. And that happens in a myriad of ways. And we return to Scripture. Submission is inescapable as a vital integer for a healthy marriage. So what biblical priorities matter then? We got to get practical with it. If we know submission is key, and we have established what it is not, yet we have understood according to Scripture what it is, now practically we've got to begin to implement this submission. I want you to look with me in verse 3. Of 1 Peter 3. The verses will be here and I want you to see something. I'm going to emphasize it. I'm going to be intentional about it. Who's adorning? Now he's talking to wives. Peter's talking to wives and he's saying, now ladies, you're adorning. (laughs) Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and putting on of apparel. Now just stick with me and I'll help you understand what this means. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. 
Now get this. For after the manner in the old time, the holy women also. So stop for a second. Let's just call a time out. And we're saying this is old school scripture. Peter tells us this is from the old time. You could literally kind of scrunch that together and say this is what the old time holy women did. You say, if there's anything I've never wanted to be, it's an old time holy woman. I understand. But there is a beautiful aspect to the old time holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. How did they adorn themselves? By being in subjection unto their own husbands. Let me reiterate through Paul and Peter and here again now he is saying over and again this is a relationship between you and your husband. This is not a subjection, a submissive spirit to all men. This is within the marital confines. Did you note that in those verses he used the word adorning three times? And on one occasion, he spoke of an ornament. When he uses the word adornment in those verses, he is using the Greek word cosmos. In our English language, cosmos, the world, it is the ordered universe, the cosmos. We transliterate that Greek word cosmos here, that's what he's using, the adornment, and we get our English word cosmetics. It is the ordered face and appearance, cosmetics. And what Peter is saying in these verses is this. The world will tell you the way to win a man is all external. But he says, I want to draw a line from the cosmetics, the outward appearance, to the cardia. That's the word heart. And what he is saying is this, I want you to focus, I want to restore the balance between the cosmetics and the inward man. I want you as a believing lady to comprehend and understand the condition of your heart beautifies you in the eyes of God and ultimately is what the man needs. Now that's where we have to call a timeout, right? You say, this is the whole reason I'm here, man. Hair, jewelry, and apparel has been brought up. Go. You're going to get in trouble now. Plating of the hair, wearing of gold, and putting on of apparel. In the explicit context that Peter is speaking, and within the Greek language, he is talking about all of these things being done to excess. He is articulating the idea that the plating of the hair and the wearing of the gold and the putting on of this particular type of apparel is all done with the wrong motivation. It is a desire to garner attention for all of these things. And what Peter is saying is we must, as believers, restore the balance between the cosmetics and the cardia, between the outer and the inner. In effect, it is not merely the cosmetic, it is also the heart, and God has placed a higher value. To him, this is of great price. This is the ornament that matters to God. Now, every one of us can comprehend what is being communicated. We live in a world where the exterior is not only vitally important, it is openly put on display in order to woo. And Peter is balancing it out for the believer. 
Now we'll call another timeout. There's a lot of timeouts in this message and a lot of sticking to my notes. In fact, I'm way too extemporaneous and way too far from my notes right now. This is where trouble sneaks in. I have heard a pastor say, and I agree with him, there are some women who think superior holiness means that you must, this was his terminology, not mine, look like an unmade bed. Like I'm super righteous. Look how righteous I am. I don't take care of myself at all. This is how righteous I am. I'm so righteous, I don't put any effort into the external. Now, I have been married for 25 plus years. That allows me to say some things. I've done a quick scan of the auditorium. My wife's not in here. I can say a lot of things. Someone might say, Pastor, I noticed that your wife has the audacity to get her hair done. Yes. Uh, Does she color her hair? That's for you to ask her. See, now I notice that your wife wears makeup and jewelry, and on occasion, I'm going to tread lightly here, I've even noticed heels. Heels, the audacity of this woman. Yes, you know one of the things that I like that I am married to a woman? I like the distinction between the sexes to be magnified and amplified. If my wife looked like me, I would have never married her. I'm not into me. I'm into her. And what I find is so often the holy women of old like to draw a clear distinction between the genders and at the same time about look as masculine as they possibly can on the flip. No, thank you. Peter is not saying to the detriment of caring for yourself, only work on the inner man or here inner woman. He is saying within this Roman culture, Within our day, as we look at the world, we can grasp the immorality that is displayed and the immodesty that is constantly put out there. It is not that. You, in in effect, understand Peter is freeing the woman from being bound to the external appearance. You are going to age, he says. I'm not being crass. I'm not being ugly. He is saying, you remain beautiful by that which is never changing, the internal. Grasp what he's teaching. Here are the principles. Here are the things that matter greatly. He's not forbidding cosmetics. He's restoring the balance between the cosmetics and the cardia. Work on the heart. Well, what exactly should I work on on the heart? Help me grasp that. He says, well, here's what you can work on. It's a two-step process. Work on having a meek and quiet spirit. Meek. Work on having a meek Spirit, the word for meek means gracious, considerate. It's kindness as opposed to being demanding. By the way, as we studied earlier this year in depth, meekness is on the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Which ultimately then means that it is for all of us. It also communicates to us that the meekness that is being asked for here by Scripture is not you subjugating your personality and just zipping your lips. It is a fruit of the Spirit that you exhibit because you are under the control, under the dominion, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You live out meekness. Jesus Christ was described as meek. Meekness does not mean meekness. Peter is not recommending that women here become doormats or open to abuse. He's not suggesting that women cannot share their minds or their opinions. In fact, Jesus was known by that quality of meekness, yet he spoke his mind. 
Jesus was meek, yet he shared his opinion. But Jesus would never be considered out of control. Hold on, he flipped tables over at the temple. I can do that part. That's righteous indignation. That's actually offered up to us as an example of zeal for God. It was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus was meek. This is gentleness. This is a considerate nature. This is kindness lived out. This is not a manipulating of your words merely or a twisting of your personality only. This is the dominion of the Holy Spirit. This is living out under the influence of the Holy Spirit meekly and a quiet spirit. Oh boy, he told women to be quiet. He said, have a quiet spirit. Now this does not mean never making a sound. In fact, the word that Peter uses here relates to peace. She is literally at peace. One Greek scholar said this word describes someone who calmly bears the disturbance created by others without creating a disturbance themselves. When you think of the immediate context, again you grasp, you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. In effect, when things around her are warlike, she is pursuing peace. It is a quiet nature. And again, this is how believers should live. Seek peace and ensue it. Chase it down like a predator chasing prey, the scripture says. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Not just keepers, but those who go out of their way to make peace. Now just walk with me for a second. The forever principles have already told us that we are of equal value. That God ordained marriage, and it is for the betterment and fulfillment of all. Marriage was God's idea, and family was his plan. Undoubtedly, it's under attack, and it has been mangled and twisted by sin. So we return to our biblical moorings, and unequivocally, the scripture says to submit. We know what it is not. We know what it is, a willing rank under And to get practical with it, to live it out, here's what Peter says. Restore the balance. Restore the balance. Order the inside. God views that as something of great price. Wear that ornament. Put that jewelry on. And it is a meek and a quiet spirit. Gentleness and considerateness and kindness and pursuing peace all under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. See, I know that women cannot have personalities and they can't have a sense of humor and we can never dress nice. We have to basically wear burlap. That's all we can do and just sit quietly with our heads down. I don't see that within Scripture. Not, not anywhere within Scripture. And, and we're going to grasp this in a second because I know someone is sitting out there and they're thinking to themselves, I'm not getting up and leaving this room until you address the verse that says Sarah called Abraham Lord. So let's go there right now. Verse 6, notice what he says. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and men are thinking to themselves, yep, this is the one I have been waiting for. In fact, hon, you might want to learn to curtsy like a little of this, because when I enter a room, I just, Lord, is that, is that, are you serious now? You're going to go there. I'm going there. This is in Peter's letter. Even as Sarah 
obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Get this, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. What are we talking about? Now, I love that the scripture gives us the answer here. I don't believe that every time Abraham entered the tent that he was bowed to and called Lord. In fact, it is able to be established within Scripture that we know of one instance where Sarah called Abraham Lord. And I'll take you there in a moment. Peter is referring to a moment in their marriage where angelic visitors have come and announced to an elderly Abraham that he and Sarah are going to have a child. When Sarah hears the announcement, she laughs to herself because she is 90 years old and Abraham is 100 years old. And when the angelic visitors look at her and say, hey, now you laugh, she responds and says, now here was my thought process. Sarah laughed within herself saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? There it is. There's the instance. You say, so you're telling me right now, she didn't curtsy every time that Abraham entered the tent. He threw the tent open and, go, Lord, Lord, can I get you the goat off the fire pit now, Lord? Do you need me to get your camel girdle now, Lord? Should I stand and fan you, Lord Abraham? When she says that, in that moment in time, what is communicated in the language is this is literally an ongoing spirit of reverence and esteem for her husband in his position. By the way, Abraham was not perfect. Neither was Sarah. In fact, there were times that Abraham coerced Sarah to lie about being his sister. And Sarah had opinions about how things could get accomplished by offering up her handmaid. This was a union of two sinful adults just like you and I. But Sarah is cataloged in the chapter of great faith, Hebrews 11, because overriding all of these imperfections and these moments of failings, she had an ongoing spirit of esteem and reverence for her husband. This was an ongoing thing. That phrase has given people opportunity to jump all over it and say this this scriptural system is tantamount to slavery. But if you just grasp the context of their marriage, you'll note that Sarah isn't bowing and scraping. She wasn't a wallflower. She wasn't weak-minded. She wasn't a doormat. But she had an ongoing spirit of reverence toward her husband. In effect, she was submissive. It was a pattern in her life, an attitude of consideration, an attitude of deference. More than once within Scripture, we can see her challenge him to think differently. But at the same time, when he leaves the land of his people, going on a journey where he doesn't even know the end destination, she goes with him. She was completing him. She was in her life esteeming and offering deference and reverence to him. And he says, look, if you will live out the scriptural principle, then you are her daughter in effect. You're honoring God because you're bearing that family resemblance. You say, man, I just don't think she was married to what I'm married to. I don't know. He took a handmaid and had a kid with the handmaid. He literally told his wife to, hey, let's tell everybody you're my sister. I mean, he wasn't perfect. 
There's a lot of twi- He made her live in a tent. Never even gave her a great house in the hills. They never owned a boat. She never had a car to herself. She may have on occasion, okay, she may have had the better camel. I don't know. I don't think she ever had a closet full of really great stuff. And this is like animal hides and tanned leathers and stuff. Open-toed sandals all the time. This is her life. I don't think her tent smelled great. I don't think Abraham smelled great. I think he had a pretty gnarly beard. That's what I think. I think they went at each other. I think there were times they were tired, but there was an overriding attitude of faith in God. And prevalent throughout this entire testament, this discourse, is not Peter with a misogynistic tone telling women how to behave. This is Peter articulating the forever foundational eternal principles of Scripture. Men and women are of equal value. But they have distinct roles. And marriage being God's idea and family being God's plan, navigating a sin-cursed world is that we, as husbands, must return to a selfless love and women, as wives, must return to a selfless submission. Submission is not a, a, a free pass for abuse and bad behavior. It's a willingness to rank under. It's not coerced from. It's offered to. And the way that we accomplish and convey that submissiveness is we restore the balance and we go to work on the cardia, the inner, the hidden man or woman of the heart with a meek and quiet spirit offering up support and reverence and esteem to be the helper suitable to make him into the man that he should ultimately be. Say, man, that sounds like selflessness. There are times that he's so dumb. He needs to hear from me. He does need to hear from you. But listen, it is possible to communicate helpful things in a meek and quiet and deferential and considerate way. That's why God gave us each other. To the husband who has begun to devalue what he has in his wife, may I remind you that God said, a man that finds a wife finds a good thing. So, well, she used to be a good thing about 15 years ago, but honestly, Pastor, it is a mediocre thing at best. It's a good thing. The intrinsic value does not fluctuate on the external. The intrinsic value does not fluctuate on behavior. God said that's a good thing. God has placed a high value on her in your life. He formed that union and God values that union. He does. And he looks at the woman and he says, I know that you seek validation from your culture. And the only way to get validation from your culture is to work so desperately hard and go over the top and be extravagant in the plating of your hair and the putting on of gold and the wearing of apparel, attempting, striving, trying to get attention for all the wrong reasons. And it's a miserable way to live because it doesn't all stay as it once was and you just can't keep up and compete. So restore the balance. Free yourself from that bondage. Free yourself from that prison. Work on the hidden car. Cardia, move from the cosmetic to the cardia, from the outward to the inner, and be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, considerate and kind, quiet, peaceable, and seeking peace, a harbor in the storm. Understand that esteem, that reverence, that deference, that respect that you offer validates and affirms and builds him up. He isn't going to be perfect, and you're not going to be perfect, but that's what God places value on. 
which indicates to us that we don't have to find our validation from our culture. We don't even at times have to find our validation from our husbands. Our hope is sourced in God. And our esteem and value is sourced in God. And if this is what God says is of great value, then that is what I will pursue. And in that, I will find fulfillment and validation. I think when Peter wrote this letter, it probably arrested the attention of the congregation because there was a lot of ladies in church alone. In the midst of a pagan Roman culture where extravagance was always put on display and that's where worth was found, Peter says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live like that. It's selflessness. You say, honestly, pastor, every time I come to this portion of scripture, I think to myself, wives are to submit and husbands are to love. But if you want to be honest, pastor, I think wives have to submit and love. We always get the worst end of the stick. Unless you come back next week and we talk about biblical love. And I will tell you this, you will be able to elbow a bruise into your husband's arm because I can almost guarantee you that according to Christ's standard of love, every one of us are failing miserably. You say, well, you know, the benefit to coming here is to know that you and Christy have a perfect marriage and so everything that you say is from that vantage point. And you're right. We've got it figured out. I am a doofus of a husband. I get tired, and honestly, I'm a dirtbag when I'm tired. I can be mean and condescending. And, and, and listen, here's something that strikes me on occasion when I see a picture of myself or a mirror. I am not what I once was. She is. You thought I was going to say something different, didn't you? She is. I have no idea why she's with me. I have no idea why she's with me. But I do know this. What we have right now, God puts a lot of value on. And can you not grasp how much we cheapen it when there are affairs and things and we look at God and say, well, this is all we're looking for. We devalue what you greatly value and this is our aim. It's so base and God has such a higher aim for us. And listen, I am not saying those holy women of old. This is old time teaching and those old time holy women lived this out. They did. But it doesn't mean that you can't look nice and take care of yourself. I reject and resent and think that's a perversion and a twisting of Scripture. And I mean that with conviction. But we got to restore the balance. Because things have gotten out of kilter. And ladies are striving for value and worth. And they're just struggling to find it. And God has said, let yourself off the hook. Here it is. It's actually a better way of life. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.